Well, good morning. Uh, I want to begin this morning by reading uh, from um, the call to worship reading that we had, or the, the gospel reading that we had this morning. And I'm sorry if there was some confusion. I, I don't know if that was me, if I copied and pasted wrong or whatever, but we're going to read through this again. Um, and I was intending to do that anyway, because this is a, an important text, I think, for the Christmas season. And so I want us to um, be refreshed on it. So I'll be reading um, uh, from Matthew 1, 18 through 23, uh, where Matthew records, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So um, this idea of Emmanuel, even though it doesn't occur very often in the Bible at all, in fact, it occurs three times, once in the New Testament, twice in the Old Testament, it's an important word. And uh, it's an important word that conveys really some, some radical ways of thinking and doing in that time and in that place that it's probably lost on us today. Um, and so in a few minutes, I want to explore why that is, especially in, I mean, I, I always think that we can appreciate the biblical text more if we understand its significance then and there, as opposed to just here and now. I think it takes more meaning in the here and now if we understand it better in the then and there. So, um, but I, I, I want to begin with this. And I sent, you know, uh, this morning to everybody uh, the encouragement to share with each other experiences that we may have had where we felt God's presence in our lives in a particularly powerful way. Um, and normally when that happens, uh, it happens when we are in a place Maybe it could be during a church service. Oftentimes it happens when we are experiencing some kind of significant challenge or problem in our life, and we feel the presence of Christ come into our life to surround us. Uh, I make it a point uh, when I pray for people who ask for prayer for healing um, and many of you will have heard it when people come to the altar and ask for prayer, that almost invariably, almost always, uh, towards the end of the prayer, I ask that God would surround that person, that they would feel his presence in their life, and the comfort and the peace, even the joy that comes from that. So in my own life, uh, there have been numerous times when, and again, especially through when I was going through some difficult thing, as I was praying, as I was seeking peace, as I was seeking wisdom, you, I, I could feel God's Spirit come upon me and say, I mean, did I hear an audible word? No. But I felt this, it's okay. You'll be all right. I have this. 
you'll do okay. How many of you have had an experience like that in your life? Where you experienced God as Emmanuel, God with us in that way. So we want that in our life. Um, I mean, so what I want to say is we want to, I think we want to remember those times in our lives. Uh, <coughs> because, it, because it's what helps to undergird and give us the, the, the strength that we need and the assurance that we desire. Excuse me. If you're like me, all of us have a little bit of a cough or a tickle, so... I apologize if I do that. Um, and this was particularly elusive to people in ancient civilizations. <clears throat> there was no promise from any of their gods of comfort and peace, of assurance. Uh, the experience that they had with their gods was much different than the experience that we are promised and given by ours. So the radical idea of God as Emmanuel within the wider Greco-Roman cultural context is important and helpful to understand. Um, and so I'm just going to go over this, and I'm on that slide now, Bree, the radical idea of God as Emmanuel, and then I'm going to go to the, this reading that I got from um, that really helps to explain, I think, it. I think so. So, the Greek and Roman gods often elevated their mortal children to grandchildren or grandchildren to the status of heroes or even to the status of gods. In contrast, their treatment of humans who could boast no divine ancestry was often exploitive or punitive. Only mortals who behaved in a holy, moral, and humble manner could hope to get anything from their gods. And so, um, for them, any benefit or any even hope of an afterlife that they might get was based entirely upon their works. It's how they lived their life. It's how they pleased their God. It's it's whatever kind of uh, practices, religious practices they engaged in, whatever kind of sacrifices they made. Sometimes it had to do with moral character. Oftentimes it didn't because the gods that they worshipped were capricious. And so um, we read here uh, uh, the, the Greek gods... Or, for example, like Zeus, or the Roman gods, for, for example, like Jupiter. I don't know if you know this, but the Greeks came before the Romans. And when the Romans conquered the Greeks, the Romans basically took the gods that the Greeks worshipped and made them their own. So Zeus was, a Greek, was the head Greek god, uh, and the Romans took him and they named him Jupiter, and he became their head God. So it worked its entire, all the way down, whatever, whatever gods the, Greek had, the Greeks had, the Romans took those gods and they renamed them. So uh, the Greek, or example, Zeus and the Roman, uh, for example, Jupiter, were in essence divine beings, but with a moral nature similar to that of humans. 
often requiring virtue from humans, they themselves violated repeatedly. So the Roman gods and the Greek gods were just as prone to lust, just as prone to envy, just as prone to dissent, just as prone to jealousy. Um, they kidnapped people, uh, according to Greek and Roman mythology, they kidnapped people, they raped, they stole, they did all of the things of human beings that they were just divine. That was the difference. Okay? Um, their direct imminent, the word imminent means to be present. Their direct imminent involvement with humans was almost entirely self-serving, content to leave uh, most of humanity to fate. And fate was a big thing in ancient cultures. So uh, the word uh, mora, uh, which is the word fate, so uh, the gods really didn't direct the paths of humans. They just left it, they just gave it over to uh, fate. And so, um, uh, and so it's explained like this. The Greek god of fate is represented by the Moriae, also known as the fates. The Moriae were three sisters, Clotho, Lechius, Astro, uh, Atropos. Clotho spun the thread of life at birth. Lachius measured it, and Atropos cut it at the time of death. The Moriae were responsible for determining human destinies, including the span of a person's life and his allotment of misery and suffering. This way of thinking, in various degrees, was ubiquitous. It was everywhere in the world that had anything to do with Roman and Greek culture. It was everywhere. Everyone thought in this kind of way. It was basically hopeless. And it was dark. And these gods that they would beg and sacrifice to to help them in whatever way they possibly could usually did not, at least in their mind. And so these people were left to fate. To somebody who spun some string so that their life began to build as a tapestry and then after that would happen, somebody would measure it for a certain period of time, and then somebody else would say, ah, you're done, and just cut you off. But built into that tapestry was the kind of fate that usually brought misery and suffering. It was a dark world. And so, when Jesus burst on the scene and was declared to be the Emmanuel, the God of the universe, who would give them hope, who, um, as we read in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was unheard of. No one did this. No gods would do anything like this. I mean, this was, this was greater than fate. 
It was bigger than Zeus or Jupiter or Diana or Athena or whoever else was there. It was bigger than all of that. And so now, sort of like piercing this darkness of hopelessness, was this new God that they had not heard of, who was Emmanuel. Rather than these gods living up in some kind of celestial city and in, in a very sort of uh, kind of uh, patronizing way, being involved with humanity in, in ways that only served them or brought them pleasure, here was a God who came to live among human beings, who took on their, their attributes, their characteristics. I mean, when you read in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says to the church in Philippi, do you understand that Jesus, when he came to be a human being, laid aside a certain amount of his divine nature in order to make it possible to become human? Can you imagine what that would be like? What would it be like for you to retain all of the memories of what it's, what it's like to be a human being, but then to be so concerned about the, the, the condition of slugs that you laid aside uh, a vast portion of your humanity in order to become a slug, and you became a slug, but you could still remember what it meant to be like to be human. How crazy is that? I mean, do you... Do, this is why the gospel in part spread so quickly throughout the, the Mediterranean basin in the world itself, because it was so, it was just so utterly different than what people experienced in that day and at that time. Now, in our own world, that really isn't um, part of the dynamic, part of the reality. In our world, we are motivated uh, by uh, a kind of toxic form of autonomy, self-rule. And out of that self-rule, what we desire more than anything else is to maximize the greatest amount of pleasure the most amount of the time. And so part of our challenge is to say, look, our relationship with Christ brings us tremendous fulfillment Enjoy the things that you are pursuing, those kinds of pleasures that would bring you the most amount of pleasure, uh, the greatest amount of time, those are empty. They won't serve you well. Now, in some ways, that's a harder sell today. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because the scriptures are clear that when we get towards the end times, people will become darkened of mind more and more and the ways in which truth and reality are understood will become more and more obscure and difficult to understand. So, in, I think, in a sense, it was easier to share the gospel then. The message was more encouraging, more inviting than maybe what it is today for many people. So as we understand the word Emmanuel then, Literally, Emmanuel means God is present in our lives. 
For example, he is omnipresent. So God is everywhere in all places at all times. There is not a place in which God is not there. There's not a time, there's not a place. He is always there. He is omnipresent, and in that way, he is Emmanuel. In the Old Testament, when the Jews were, were in the wilderness for 40 years, he was Emmanuel during the day as a pillar of fire, I mean, as a pillar of smoke, and during the night as a pillar of fire. Which, by the way, I frequently have had conversations over the years where people say to me, well, you know, if I could actually see Jesus, then I would believe. If Jesus were here and I could talk with him, then I would believe. Well, how much more convincing would you need in the Old Testament than to have this God go before you as this dominant pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire overnight to protect and to guide you and still find ways, a myriad of ways to be disobedient and to doubt. How long would Judas have to have been with Jesus before he would finally believe who Jesus really was? The truth of the matter is, that we are married to our own uh, views of reality, to the narratives that we prefer. And when we are married to them, it doesn't matter what truth or what reality is laid before us. We prefer that and we will deny and, and find ways to eliminate the real reality and the real truth. So Jesus or that is to say, God is Emmanuel to us because he's omnipresent, because um, he was present in the Old Testament as a theophany. And then, before Jesus departed this earth, he gave us who? The Holy Spirit. So I was just talking to Jeff. Do you mind if I share your story about the lights? So I don't know how many of you know, but Jeffy does a tremendous amount of work around here. And uh, when the Lord calls him up yonder, it's going to be a big hole to fill, okay? So, but anyway, he did all kinds of work around his house, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just tired. I've been doing So he said, I, I'm just not sure I can do the lights around the church. So while he was doing the lights around his house, he said, the Holy Spirit began to say to me, Oh, so you can decorate your house, but you can't decorate the Lord's house. Is that how it went? Is that how it went? <laughs> and the Lord gave you a couple of nice days to get it done, right? <laughs> That's right. It could have been today, right? So, so the Holy Spirit, living in Jeff, brought conviction to his heart and said, look, you have the time, you have the effort, you have the means, you have the re you can decorate my house. It's always been a passion of yours in the past. Let that passion come again and let it be a passion for you now. So God is Emmanuel in our life because he brings conviction to us a lot of times, as well as comfort, as well as joy. Is that not true? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a break here from this message because 
I wanted Jim to come up and share, and I think I beat him up to the pulpit. But Jim has, I think, a message that's not unlike what I'm talking about. And so by way of illustration, and maybe this is providence, why don't you come up and share, Jim, and then I'll come back up and, and I'll finish my message. You ready? Come on up. Good morning. Have you ever been on a journey and taken the wrong turn and end up in the wrong home? I have. But let me start at the beginning. I was born in Beaver Falls. One month later, I was out in San Francisco. My dad was stationed at Fort Ord, California. Dad was career army. I loved being an army brat. Now Lorraine would say, I'm just a brat. <laughs> but I take pride in being an army brat. And there were a lot of advantages to that. I grew up on army post. I learned how to fire a weapon. Where I could hardly hold the rifle. I learned how to shoot in a prone position with the barrel of the rifle lying on a sandbag. I learned how to repel off of mountain cliffs when I was in high school because dad was stationed at the Army Ranger Camp, the mountaineering part of the training. I lived in different cultures. I lived in Europe. I was able to see Paris, Amsterdam. We lived in Munich, Germany traveled all over Europe. I always, always rode with the GIs. My brother and sister rode with mom and dad. I wanted to be with the GIs. Loved it. But with that lifestyle came some disadvantages that I didn't realize while I was growing, while I was growing up. Subconsciously, I never got close. Lorraine would tell, why are you so distant, standoffish? And part of that is, by the time I entered seventh grade, that was my fifth school. And so you could be my friend, but it was only temporary and I would never see you again in this lifetime. I know what it's like to be 12 years old and your dad comes back from being gone for 12 months and you run on the, and you embrace your dad. I know what it's like to see your dad in the hospital after he's been medevaced out of a war zone. But I was proud of my dad, and I was proud to be an Army brat. When I entered seventh grade, it was in a small community in North Georgia. We were the only Yankees in that county. We stood out. Our next-door neighbor 
was the Grand Wizard of the Klan in that county. You think we had anything in common? I was raised, it doesn't matter the color of a man or a woman's skin. What matters is their character and if they have your back. And so, some years later, I go to Geneva College, fall in love with this young lady over here. We marry right after graduation in 1971. And within that first seven years of being married, we moved four times. When I joined the railroad in 1978, we went to Enola, Pennsylvania, Enola Locomotive Repair Shop. Enola happened to be Lorraine's hometown. Her whole family lives there. We spent 17 years there. We worshiped at Somerdale Christian Missionary Alliance. We were involved. I taught Sunday school. We ministered to the college age young adult group. I was an elder there for many years. We ran around with a group about five couples, we were the same age, we had kids the same age, and so we grew, they grew up together. It was a small group, we didn't call it that then, but that was our small group. We became close. My closest spiritual male was Frank Beaver. Remember Frank? Then one Friday afternoon, I got a phone call from my boss. He says, Jim, I got good news and bad news for you. And I laughed. I says, okay, give me the good news. He says, you still have a job. I says, what's the bad news? You gotta move to keep it. And I laughed again, I thought he was kidding. He says, Jim, I'm serious. I just left the staff meeting in Philadelphia. You will get a phone call on Monday saying that you're being transferred to Conway Locomotive Shop. And I says, how long do I have to think about this? He says, when you get that phone call, you have to say yes or no. And if you say no, you don't have a job. 17 years. I put down emotional roots in that community, with those people, in that church. I never, up until that time, had a home that I could say, this is my home. But I was able to do that in Somerdale. And after 17 years, I was transferred. I didn't like it. I was angry, I was upset. When we physically moved, our daughter who's sitting over here cried the entire 220 miles from Harrisburg to Beaver Falls. Why do we gotta move, Daddy? Why do we gotta move? 
she adapted well. I struggled. I would get up in the middle of the night, go out in the yard, look up into the heavens and say, I don't understand. I don't understand why you did this. That was my home. I never had a home my entire life. I moved every couple years up until age 30. Those were friends that I could count on. And I struggled. I shared in Sunday school my struggles. And the elder, that when he spoke, it was like E.F. Hutton. You know, everyone got quiet. And, and he goes, well, Abraham didn't have a problem moving when God called him. And I mustered up all the agape love that I had in this <laughs> five foot seven. And I looked at him and said, I'm not Abraham. <laughs> and God called Abram, not Abraham. It wasn't until later that God renamed Abram. So anyway, so I had this struggle. And one night, God reminded me, he said, I have plans for you. Plans that won't harm you. Plans that will give you a hope and a joy. And I said, I don't understand. And he says, Jim, to quote a good man, I need to recalibrate you. He says, you need to bend your knee. And you need to say, not Jim Doyle's will, but your will be done. And I did that. And God also says through the prophet Jeremiah that that plan will give you a hope and a future. God gave us hope. He gave Lorraine and I, we had a ministry there in Somerdale Alliance Church uh, with a young adult, college-aged kids who are now married and have children of their own. We still keep in contact with uh, the young adults that were in Somerdale who are now middle-aged and have young adult children of their own. I taught Sunday school there, and I became an elder there. The lesson, the hope, the Emmanuel, God with me. God said, through Moses in Psalm 90, verse 1, Oh God, you have been our dwelling place for all generation. And God was saying when he, the term dwelling place when it's applied to human is home. And what God was saying to me, was, Jim, I'm your home. Come home. Plant your roots in me, not a community, not something that's temporary. Plant your roots deep in something that will be eternal. And you know what happened? 
God did that. And he gave me shalom. He restored. He made complete that which was absent because of my rebellion. He made complete in him. And God moved us after 25 years from worshiping in uh, Chippewa Alliance Church. He moved us here. The 25 years that we stayed and worshiped in, or I keep saying Somerdale, in, in Chippewa Alliance Church, I didn't have a close male friend there because we were ministering to a younger generation. Nobody my age. <clears throat> I can say now, I have men who are my age, who are my friends. I have breakfast with them every Tuesday. We challenge each other. We sharpen each other in the Lord. And God said, and he honored his word, I will give you a hope and I will give you a future. And that future is bright in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So you can see in his experience the trauma of never really having a home, a place that he was rooted in. And then when he felt like he had that, being uprooted and brought to a place. And back then, there were a lot of people, if you said you were going to Western PA in Beaver County, that, that would not have been at the top of most people's list. But because... Uh, Jim continued to find ways to be present or for God to be present in his life, that presence caused him to surrender. And in surrendering in the presence of God, he found the hope and the joy and the fulfillment that he was looking for. Did I sum that up? Is that? So that's just, a, that's just one example we probably could have a string of people come up here and share many of their own examples in that regard. Now, this word Emmanuel, God with us, and the principle and the practice behind it um, should be precious to us all because it's so very powerful. Matthew it uh, uses this text, as we read uh, earlier in, uh, uh, Matt, I think it's Matthew 1.14 1, or 2.14, um, Matthew 1.23. Uh, he, when he wrote what he wrote there, um, I read this in my, one of my study Bibles, and I thought it was so good I'd share it with you. Uh, so, Bree, it's just the word Emmanuel in bold letters on a slide with a, a picture, and this is the picture that I took from my study Bible. <coughs> Since Matthew first applied this verse to the virginal conception of Jesus, it has been one of the key passages in the Christian collection of Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. So effective 
to the early Christians in using this verse and a few others from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, um, originally uh, done by the Jews in Egypt, that the Jews found it necessary to modify the translation and even produce another Greek Old Testament. Matthew applied it to Jesus on the basis of an interpretive principle which saw equally God-given deeper meanings in the Old Testament passages. In the context of the 8th century BC, Isaiah was offering Judah's king Ahaz a sign of encouragement and, and, and so on and so forth. But the point here is that this hope that the word Emmanuel brought all the way back in the 8th century was so powerful to Jews in the New Testament era. Let me get this. So in the Hebrew, when it's used in Isaiah 7.14, in the Hebrew, that Hebrew word, uh, Emmanuel, means young maiden or virgin, and they are used synonymously. The Septuagint, which is a Greek interpretation of that Hebrew Bible, which the Greeks put together, I mean, sorry, which the Jews put together in Egypt, changed that word from, uh, more specifically, from maiden virgin to just virgin. When Christians began to cite that verse, that the Jews in the Greek Septuagint made exclusively virgin, which implies divine, a divine birth. You following me here? It was so compelling that the Greeks, after the resurrection of Christ and after the, the Christians used that passage so much, the Jews went back and changed that word so that it could no longer be leveraged against them. But Matthew, in recording what he recorded, specifically did not use the Old Testament interpretation, the Hebrew interpretation. He used the Old Testament Greek Septuagint to get specifically for the idea of Jesus was born of a virgin, which implies a divine birth, which implies that he was the Son of God. So there's a lot going on here in that way. Now, there are examples of uh, Emmanuel throughout Scripture, and so I want to just share some of these with you. If you go to Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, we read, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us, Emmanuel, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I'm, um, there's a blending there of, of passages. I, I'm sorry about that. But you can see in this, uh, in this passage from the Psalms 
that King David says, wherever you are, you are Emmanuel. You are always there. The Apostle Paul talks about how there isn't anything that can separate us from the presence of God. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus, John records where Jesus says, If you love me, and you, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This promise of Emmanuel is permanent for the believer. It's our source of comfort. It's our source of strength. And finally, Jesus' final words in the Great Commission, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so that's the promise that is given to us from God, from Jesus himself, that he is Emmanuel. Now, this is a remarkable thing, as I've said before. And it's remarkable because um, it's helpful to understand that God, in all of his vastness, can take an interest in us when we are so insignificant by comparison. So almost every night I take a walk where I live and I walk usually about two miles and it takes me about an hour because I walk about two miles per hour. A lot of times though, um, I, I, I wanna walk a little faster and so I can do that in 40 minutes. But that's the time that it takes for me to do what I do. From my home to this church is about 18 miles. It takes me about 26, 27 minutes to get here. So that's how long it takes to go 18 miles in my vehicle. When you think about the distance between us, uh, between the West Coast and the East Coast, I'm sorry, the East Coast and the West Coast, it's about 3,000 miles. And at one time, it took almost an entire year to go uh, uh, three, I'm sorry, 3,000 miles from the East Coast to the West Coast in the history of our country. Now we can fly in about five or six miles, but at one time, it took an awful long time to go from the East Coast to the West Coast in terms of distance. I don't know if you know this, but the Earth to the Sun, I'm sorry, the Earth to the Moon is 238 uh, 855,000 miles. So oh, it is 200, I'm sorry, 238,855 miles. Bree, this is on a slide too. I'm sorry I jumped ahead for you there. So that's quite a distance, and it takes about two weeks, two and a half weeks to fly from Earth to the moon with our current technology. The distance of, from the Earth to the sun is 93 million miles. It takes about eight seconds for light to go from the sun to the earth, 93 million miles. The speed of light is 11,176,943 miles per second. Per second, the speed of light. The speed of light in terms of miles per hour 
is 670,616,629 miles per hour. So that is the speed of light per hour. Light travels 5.8 trillion miles in one year. Or I'm sorry, that's a, yeah, that's a light year. 5.8 trillion miles per year per year. The width of the, the solar system that we live in is over 23 trillion miles. That's our solar system. 23 trillion miles is the width of our solar system. Our solar system is located in a galaxy called the Milky Way. And depending on how you measure it, the galaxy is 100,000 light years. So if light travels 5.8 trillion miles in a year, and it's 100,000 of those, just how big do you think the galaxy is, according to astrophysicists? Galaxies are arranged in things called clusters or structures. Those are groupings of galaxies. Now, in all of the galaxies, there are millions, if not billions, of planets. And so now we have galaxies with billions upon billions of planets in a, a cluster called a galaxy cluster, and they are unmeasurable. And then you have a group of cl uh, clusters that contain billions or millions of galaxies, and they are called superclusters. They are unmeasurable. They contain an infinite number of planets within them. And then there's this thing called a galactic wall, which apparently have come up recently. And a galactic wall contains millions of superclusters which contains millions of clusters, which contains millions and millions of galaxies. The God of our universe is bigger than all of that. And he reaches down through all of that, past all of that, that galactic wall, past the superclusters, past the clusters, past the galaxy, the clusters themselves, past the galaxies, into our solar system. And he says, I want to be with you. I want to be present in your life. Distance is not an issue. The vastness of space and all of its complexities, you are not hidden from me. And I want you to be with me so badly that I'm willing to become like you, to live among you to die on your behalf. And I want to be with you so much that I want my Holy Spirit to live and reside within you. That's what it means for God to be Emmanuel. That even with the vastness of the world that we live in, the universe that we reside in, 
We are not hidden from him. I want to read to you in closing this uh, chapter, which I think to be remarkable. It's really one of the best chapters that describes the Emmanuel-ness, the imminence of Jesus in such a powerful way. I've probably been about five years since I've read this here, and so hopefully it'll be fresh to those of you, refreshed to those of you who've heard it, and maybe inspiring to those of you who have not. This is by Max Lucado, God Came Near. It's a wonderful book. And he captures this in a way that only he can. He writes, It all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. As moments go, the one appeared no different than any other. If you could somehow pick it up off the timeline and examine it, it would look exactly like the ones that have passed while you have read these words. That moment came and it went. It was preceded and succeeded by others just like it. It was one of the countless moments that have marked time since eternity became measurable. But in reality, the particular moment was like none other. For through this segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He was larger than the universe became an embryo. One of the reasons why I explained to you the vastness of the universe. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the ambionic fluids of his mother. God came near. He became Emmanuel. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. 
The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the streets with him, and the synagogue leader in Nazareth known was, uh, known was listening to his sermons. To think of Jesus in such a light is, well, it seems almost irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It is much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. God was our Emmanuel. He wanted to identify with us in every way. Let him into the mire and muck of our world, for only if we let him can he pull us out. If Jesus in his humanity is in the mire and muck of our world, then only because he is there can he pull us out. Love your neighbor was spoken by a man whose neighbors tried to kill him. The challenge to leave family for the gospel was issued by one who kissed his mother goodbye in the doorway. Pray for those who persecute you came from the lips that would soon be begging God to forgive his murderers. I am with you always are the words of God who in one instant did the impossible to make it all possible for you and for me because of his Emmanuel. It happened in a moment, in one moment, a most remarkable moment. The word became flesh. And there will be another. The world will see another instantaneous transformation. Transformation. You see, in becoming man, God made it possible for man to see God. When Jesus went home, he left the back door open. As a result, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The first moment of transformation went unnoticed in the world. But you can bet that the second won't. The next time you use the phrase, just a moment, remember, that's all the time it will take to change the world. So God became man so that we could become like God. He became incarnate. He became Emmanuel so that through that, we might become like him. And that is the great promise. And that is a promise that no religion, no other God, no other philosophy can make. It belongs to us and to us alone. I hope that you have embraced it and that you see the preciousness and the importance and the beauty of the word Emmanuel in the nativity story.